Welcome. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome Adam White, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state. And welcome one and all. We are particularly glad that Adam could make it this week because there was a lot of legal news. Uh, We had uh, Supreme Court oral arguments in three consolidated cases about um, presidential authority, about presidential harassment, and the Congre- and Congress's subpoena power. Um, so let us begin with, and then we can also talk about uh, other legal news involving, my, um, involving Michael Flynn and Bill Barr, um, but let's get started with this, um, this Supreme Court oral argument. Uh, Adam, let me start with the claim that was made by Jay Sekulow, one of the president's lawyers, that he should enjoy temporary presidential immunity from any kind of suit. Um, I thought that the, the appeals court had said that was a bridge too far. They thought that was against our constitutional order. The justices of the Supreme Court didn't seem to view it that way. I mean, they they were skeptical, but not so much as the appeals court. Did you agree with that? Well, I agree with that, Mona. And thank you very much again for having me on. Um, I will say that times like these, for all of the the damage that that President Trump tends to do to institutions, he certainly makes uh, life interesting for law professors like me. Uh, We have a lot to discuss. (laughs) Right. in this case, the, the, there's two cases that were argued this week. One involved the House Oversight Committee subpoenas for President Trump's financial records um, from from a, a bank. And in this other case, the one that Seculo argued, it involved the New York Attorney General's investigation into President Trump. So it raises kind of similar but different questions. One is a dispute between Congress, or at least part of Congress, and the presidency. And the other involves uh, the state law enforcement or the state law enforcers and the presidency. So when Seculo, in this argument, um, makes some pretty, at first glance, breathtaking claims about presidential immunity to investigation uh, by, by states. Uh, during his presidency, we all should sort of take pause and say, wait a second, is it really true that the president is different in that respect? Well, in some ways, yes, for reasons that the Supreme Court described in the Paul Jones case and before that in the Watergate case, that yes, uh, presidents, we should look skeptically on broad claims of categorical immunity, but there are some important questions raised when one of the the, the, the state or local governments, uh, many, many, many law enforcement officers tries to investigate the one and only president that we have. And so it raises questions of separation of powers and, and also federalism. So I wasn't surprised that the justices are giving this extremely broad argument uh, a hearing. It'll be interesting to see where they actually wind up in their opinions. One thing that didn't come up in this discussion of his potential criminal liability, they said, you know, there are, what, 3,600, you know, prosecutors around the country who could, in theory, um, uh, bring charges against the president. But that's not realistic, is it? I mean, the president, no conceivable president could have committed crimes in all those jurisdictions, right? (laughs) Not even this one. (laughs) 
You know, I, I joked. I joked in the very early weeks of the Trump presidency that, um, ironically, uh, his claims for immunity against civil, you know, lawsuits, and I, I, w- I guess I wish, wish I would have mentioned criminal lawsuits, is the fact that there are so many people looking to either sue him or investigate him. Um, that's sort of the irony of the Paul Jones case. That, um, as, as somebody pointed out in the oral argument this week. Um, you know, Paula Jones wasn't even an attorney general. She was just one person trying to um, bring a lawsuit against President Clinton. Um, and that's true. Um, but things, I mean, as ugly as things were in the 90s, um, things have certainly changed since then with the politici- the further politicization of lawsuits, of attorney general's offices, and, and so on. You're right. There aren't thousands and thousands of people who are investigating President Trump, at least not yet. Um, but... There are a, there are you know twenty something state attorney generals who would love to uh, bring this kind of investigation into President Trump if they can find any kind of hook. Obviously, this is New York because that's where President Trump was from, um, and where his financial records are, are largely kept. Um, but I think it's fair to say if we allow this lawsuit to go forward, if the court does, then how many more lawsuits? can go forward or investigations can go forward before the court needs to draw a line. And that's an extremely difficult line for the court to draw once it's opened the door up to these sorts of investigations. But didn't it already open the door with the U.S. v. Nixon and with the Paul Jones versus Clinton cases? It did. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, Stuart Taylor, the legal journalist, and I wrote a piece for the Weekly Standard where we walked through the, the Nixon tapes case and the Paul Jones case. And warned readers that they weren't necessarily, those two precedents don't totally open up the door to the sorts of investigations or subpoenas that some were hoping that at the time uh, Mueller would bring against the president. In both of those cases, the court said, let me put it this way, the court looked at what was being requested, whether it was President Nixon's tapes, whether it was uh, President Clinton. Um, answering a subpoena for, and I can't now remember if it was documents, I think. I don't know if at the time it was personal testimony. Um, and the court said this is not in and of itself a huge burden upon the president. Uh, it doesn't require much of his time. But the court in both those cases did concede the fact that at some point a, a line does need to be drawn if it looks like there's a risk of of, of overburdening the president and his limited schedule. Now, I'll add, let's recall, at least in the Nixon case, we're talking about a federal prosecutor, right? Um, In the Paula Jones case, I can't remember if it was a federal court or not. Here we do have that overlay of, or that additional issue of the the friction between the state governments and the federal government, which adds a further complicating factor into it. Right. And that element was not present in the debate about the um, congressional subpoenas. There, there was a long discussion among the justices about um, whether this might amount, that is the House of Representatives issuing subpoenas for President Trump's personal documents for uh, business records and tax returns and so forth, um, whether this would amount to harassment of the president. And one of the things that the lawyer for the House of Representatives got some criticism for later was people said, well, the, the justices, even Elena Kagan, they were all attempting to get him to, uh, to articulate a limiting principle. What was the limiting principle? And he couldn't come up with one. Um, do you agree with that, um, with that critique? And, and what more can you tell us about that? Well, I agree. Anytime you go to court, it's it's a it's a dangerous moment when the justices are asking you for a limiting principle and you don't give them one. Um, now, the question is, 
was it was it a situation where Doug Letter, the the lawyer, couldn't give a limiting principle or didn't give a limiting principle? Just chose not to. That's an interesting question. My friend Josh Blackman, a law professor who writes for the Volok Conspiracy blog at, at Reason, had a great post sort of analyzing the way that Doug Letter ducked and weaved, um, dodged and, and weaved around those questions and really sidestepped them, tried to filibuster a little bit. And Josh's hypothesis is that Letter, either by his own choice or by his clients, the, the House representatives, um, told him not to concede a limiting principle, not to negotiate against himself, and basically put the justices on the horns of the dilemma. Either come up with a limiting principle themselves or make a choice between the unlimited argument of uh, the House versus the unlimited argument of the president. I just want to say, just to frame this case, I think it's fascinating, and I've written a little bit about this for the bulwark Um what we see here is the collision of two sort of, you know, very open-ended powers, one by Congress, one by the president, right? Congress's oversight power versus presidential immunity. Neither of these powers actually appear in the Constitution. Um, and sometimes you'll see advocates on one side of the case or others say, you know, the, you know, the president doesn't have any express constitutional immunity. Therefore, he has to subject himself to Congress. And the, the argument actually works the other way, too. Right. There's no express congressional oversight power. Therefore, they can't force the president to answer. What we have here are the collision of these two fundamentally important presidential powers, oversight and, and executive privilege that are both sort of inferences that the courts and the political branches have drawn from their, their express constitutional Constitutional powers and putting the court now in the position of having to try to adjudicate this, not let it play out through the usual political forces, but actually adjudicate a dispute as judges, where judges have to sort of find legal rules, define them, and apply them, I think puts the court in a very, very difficult spot. Is it is it fair to say that this court has been more um favorable toward uh, executive power, as for example, in the travel ban cases, um, than it is sounding like it is vis-a-vis congressional power, like the power of oversight. Not totally. Uh, the, the travel ban case, the Hawaii case, does stick out as a case where the court was deferential to the Trump administration's policy and said, you know, we're not going to look behind the, the words of this policy and try to incorporate into it or impute to it, you know, all the crazy racist things that President Trump said during the campaign. Um, that's true. But they aren't always deferential. I mean, just less than a year ago, the Supreme Court struck down uh, Trump's Commerce Department citizenship question. Um, and, and said, you know, we don't believe that the Commerce Department is is being honest about its reasons here and adding the citizenship question. And we almost never, the court says, we almost never sort of try to look behind the words of a policy like this and impute motives. But here it's just too obvious not to. Now, I will say in a lot of in a lot of cases um, so far, this the, the Supreme Court has pushed back against lower courts that have issued nationwide injunctions against um, the Trump administration's policies. And in some ways there, the court is seen as really being favorable towards the Trump administration. It's complicated because you see the court pushing back, you know, not necessarily in favor of the Trump administration, but certainly among the the, the groundswell of nationwide injunctions and lawsuits that we're seeing. It's such a, it's very hard to untangle this. We watch not just the court and the Trump administration, but also Congress and its sort of newly invigorated approach, the state attorneys general and other lawsuits. It's an extremely complex system. I know it sounds really boring, um, but I think it's a challenge. It, it, once again, it's a, it puts the Supreme Court in a uniquely difficult position 
of trying to sort of maintain the longstanding rules that we've always had and the court applies while at the same time realizing that we are in just a fundamentally different um, context in all directions right now. Damon, you um, you had a piece this week worried um, about the implications of the Supreme Court oral arguments. Why don't you um, why don't you weigh in with your concerns? Sure, I'll I'll summarize them briefly and then explain why I'm actually interested in in whether a different interpretation might be more accurate. <laughs> um, briefly, it's not a very surprising objection. Uh, I'm a kind of center-left liberal guy and uh, hearing arguments about how the president of the United States should enjoy a sweeping temporary presidential immunity that shields the president from investigation and prosecution for crimes uh, sounds pretty outrageous to me and like uh, an attempt to transform the president into a king who is kind of above the law, so a kind of absolutist king even. Uh, And I think they're I mean, we, there was even a tweet floating around from Jay Sekulow from uh, the latter years of the Obama administration, which he himself accused Obama of trying to make himself into a king. And then he turns around and, of course, in defending Trump in his position as his personal lawyer before the court, uh, makes a, an argument that's uh, probably bolder than anything uh, Obama would have attempted. Um, but I do wonder... My concern, which I, I do, I do really have about uh, these kind of very, very sweeping claims to presidential immunity, um, worry me if it is a general principle that then becomes applied to the presidency, because then the presidency seems to have evolved into something else. But isn't it also the case, this is where I'm switching to maybe like an alternative objection to my own argument, (laughs) isn't it also the case that very few of the people who are making those kinds of arguments this week, and that includes Justice Department lawyers who are making them, they wouldn't really believe any of this if a Democrat were president. They don't really believe that presidents should have a blanket temporary presidential immunity for the entire time they hold the office. They just want the current president to have that. And then uh, then when a Democrat is in the office, they'll have very different views. Um, I mean, the, you mentioned and we've been talking about the, the Jones, the, the Clinton-Jones case. I mean, there you have a unanimous verdict, by the unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, 9-0, saying that a sitting president has no immunity from a civil lawsuit, um, which you would think that this, the burden of proof there would be quite different than in a case where you're trying to determine whether the president is a criminal and has behaved criminally and therefore whether, uh, I guess, yet another impeachment would be warranted, let alone possible prosecution, either while or after he is in office. Um, so I, I guess I just wonder what exactly is going on. Is his constitutional argument also going the way, uh, like uh, leaving being laid by the wayside with principled argument, the way principled argument is falling by the wayside in so many other areas of our politics that somehow one party's presidents have one standard of power and then the other party's president has a different, much, 
uh, more, much more oversight permitted, and that it changes depending on whether it's conservatives in the majority on the court or in the minority, and who's in control of the House at the time, and so forth. So. Well, as the saying goes, uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, and I feel like a lot of people are reaching into their pockets these days uh, to pay. Let me offer just a small quibble and then a bigger point. On the small quibble, um, I just read the the Jones case slightly different than you do. Um, it's not that um, the court said the presidents have no immunity. It's I, I took the case to mean that presidents don't have total immunity, right? Which is not to say that every case against a president can proceed. But in that case, in the Jones case, they said that case, or at least that subpoena could proceed. And it really was, the, the I think, one of the reasons why the, the court was unanimous um, was that the court was very, very fact specific in how it saw the burdens imposed um, by, by by Jones and her lawyers, um, and the situation that President Clinton faced. Now, of course, Bill would 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 call that situation uh, better than I would, um, uh, since he was in the administration. Um, but but that was my reading of the case. Let me let me quickly get on to a bigger point here, um, Damon. I agree totally. Right that that the way that President Trump's lawyers see President Trump and what he's claiming surely uh, differs from how they might see it when they were in private practice, not in the Justice Department and 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 watching President Obama um, and vice versa, I think. Um, the one consistency, though, I think is the Justice Department's institutional consistency. Um, and that's, I think, to be applauded, that whoever's in or out of the Justice Department in a given moment of time between now, the Bush years, the Obama years, the Clinton years, Nixon years, the Justice Department itself has been sort of institutionally consistent. Unsurprisingly, it's a fan of and an advocate for presidential immunity. But the Justice Department itself has developed over the years a deep body of analysis, sort of justifying this immunity, rooting it in constitutional terms and doctrines and traditions. And so when those hypocritical lawyers, which is, I suppose, to say all lawyers, and I'm a recovering lawyer myself, so I'm allowed to say that. But when hypocritical lawyers are, you know, wander in and out of the Justice Department, um, either they, they're their hypocrisy will take them in the direction of long-standing and I think well-reasoned, if not always totally correct, um, Justice Department um, analysis. Um, and then when they leave the Justice Department, they're free to be hypocrites in the other direction. But the Justice Department, I think, institutionally stands just as members of the the House, you know, the House lawyer team. They might see things differently from the vantage point of the House of Representatives than they might have when they were in, say, the Justice Department or um, uh, or in private practice. And I think the real goal here is for institutional stability, less so than like the stability of any given lawyer in and out of, of the administration. Um, that provides a perfect segue into the other topic I wanted to address with you, Adam, which is uh, the Michael Flynn case. Uh, at least 2,000 former DOJ prosecutors have signed a letter objecting to what Bill Barr did in dropping this case, they they say that um, I don't know if they explicitly mention this, but the the implication is that Bill Barr is behaving in a politicized way; that he is allowing presidential preference to affect his conduct of the office, and that this violates the Justice Department's um, best traditions. Um, he 
previously intervened in the Roger Stone case to recommend a lighter sentence than the career prosecutors. Now he is moving, uh, or he had his person move to um, dismiss the charges against Michael Flynn. I'd like you to comment on all of that and what you think about this. But but above all, I want to just start with the with a just a technical question. Um, sure. the, the Justice Department said they they couldn't say that they could win this case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm confused. He had already pled guilty. So can you explain that part first? Well, you're right. He already had pled guilty. Um, The case case hadn't finished. As the Justice Department points out at the very beginning of the papers that it filed on May 7th, um, Flynn is is trying to withdraw uh, the guilty plea um, for the statements that he made in 2017 to investigators. Um, so that's where the situation stood as the justice department said in this filing. And I have to admit, I'm, I haven't been able to sort of read through chapter and verse on everything that's happened. So forgive me if I get something wrong here. Um, but I, I take the, the, just from this, the, the one memo I've read, I took the crux of the justice department's argument to be that, um, uh, in light of the full course of the investigation, um, what Flynn said in January 2017 to the lawyers and the lawyers own or the investigators, I'm sorry, the investigators and what fl- the investigators themselves, Strzok and Page, um, thought of the situation at the time. It wasn't clear that Flynn's statements for which he pled guilty for perjury really were falsehoods that were materially relevant to the, the, the investigation. Um, let me put my cards on the table right away with this. I have been deeply worried, uh, profoundly skeptical, to say the least, of Flynn from long before President Trump was elected. I think the way he conducted himself publicly, um, you know, showing up at Vladimir Putin's um, event and so on. And getting I, paid I, to do it, by the and way. Getting, exactly. And, and and some of his other work for international uh, clients. Uh, that was... I'd say that and sort of the surrounding strangeness of the Trump campaign's affections for Russia is one of the reasons why I was so keen to be a, a never Trumper and, and remain so. I, there's something just strange, so strange around all of this. And I think the initial ju- um, investigations into Flynn and others were justified. Now, having said all that, you probably can guess where I'm going with this, right? That, yes. <laughs> that now, now seeing the paper, I'm not sure that Barr is right to be doing what he's doing. I don't think that he's altogether unreasonable in what he's doing here for a couple of reasons. One, just two reasons I'll say. One is the nature of perjury. As we've seen in the last 30 years, um, perjury traps are a very dangerous thing in the prosecutorial toolbox. And um, we've seen them used again and again in highly politicized investigations. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wary of them in general. Um, second, Prosecutorial power, for better and for worse, has long been a matter of prosecutorial discretion. And the, the head prosecutor at the end of the day is the attorney general, if not the president. There's something profoundly worrisome about that in our system of government. But as Justice Scalia said in his dissent in the independent counsel case, Morrison v. Olson, uh, the only thing worse than giving the president total control over prosecutors is just splitting up prosecutorial power in a bunch of different places. Um, that aren't all directly accountable to the voters through a presidential election. And I think Scalia was right about that. And so I give the benefit of the doubt, that's my starting point, to Attorney General Barr doing this. Look, I think, I'll just say one last thing. So much of what Attorney General Barr has done in his short time in office has really, needless to say, sparked a lot of suspicion about why he has been so gentle to the president's friends, including the president's strangest friends like Roger Stone. 
Um, at the same time, well before he ever got this job, um, 20 years ago, um, Barr, when he was then the former attorney general, in the course of a long oral history project for, uni- for the University of Virginia, he emphasized that he was very, very worried about politicized prosecutions and the role of prosecutorial power in sort of um, the political realm. He's always been wary of that. Now, the sad irony is what he's doing now seems to be further politicizing the situation. But for me, and I, I really encourage your listeners to, to go check out the piece that Michael Warren did for CNN um, in 2019, a profile of, of Barr, because I think Warren really nailed it. That in Barr, I think the most charitable view of what he's doing here throughout his time in office is trying to take down the political temperature surrounding the, the prosecutorial power. But needless to say, it's having right now the precise opposite effect of really sort of raising questions about politicized prosecutors. Right. And he surely must have anticipated that. Um, it's hard to imagine that he didn't foresee the response, um, especially with the likes of, of Stone. But, um, but all right, the, one last footnote on this matter, and that is um, Judge Emmett Sullivan, very well-respected judge, um, is uh, asserting his privileges, right? What, what, what do you think that he's up to? What do you think will be the result? One of the great frustrations of the moment is that as President Trump carries out all of his anti-institutional, you know, aggressions, you know, the, the for me, maybe it's naive. My my hope, my worry is that other institutions start to follow suit and in, in, in straying from their usual bounds. Um, Jack Goldsmith put that so well in his piece on the Atlant- for the Atlantic a couple of years ago on President Trump and institutions. I, I I'll be honest. I am worried that something like that is happening right now um, in the in the Flynn case um, in two ways. Um, one, when Judge Sullivan put out the sort of the invitation for people to file friends of the court briefs on this issue. Um, I mean, I guess we'll see what actually happens, how he handles the briefs that are filed, but. Usually, it's that's not. I mean, there's always anybody can file an amicus brief um, in cases, but to see a judge sort of publicly call for the public to weigh in on a, a prosecution like this, I mean, that really worries me. I sure hope that we don't have judges suddenly turning criminal cases into sort of public um, discussions. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's one worry, and, and second is. Um, the second thing that worries me is is his appointment of um, former Judge Gleason as a prosecutor, uh, not as a prosecutor, as a, as an amicus in favor of the prosecution to argue in favor of this. Judge, whatever you say about Judge Sullivan, he is definitely well respected. Um, judge Gleason himself was a bit of a loose cannon when he was a judge, a federal judge up in Brooklyn, getting directly involved, ironically, in the other direction, lobbying U.S. Attorney uh, Loretta Lynch to go easy on people who were plainly guilty of crimes trying to undo convictions because the sentences were too harsh. I mean, it's an astonishing irony between that situation and now where Gleason finds himself. I'm very wary of, of, of judge a judge bringing somebody else in to sort of step into the shoes of a prosecution that the prosecutors themselves no longer want to bring. And so I am deeply worried about that. I wish he hadn't taken those steps. Or if he needed a pick an amicus to argue this abandoned position by the Justice Department. I wish you would have picked somebody a little bit less, uh, a little bit more low key. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for all of that. Let's turn now to um, the another story that it was um, ongoing this week and that involves other institutions, including the Congress. They're having um, 
remote hearings, uh, and one of them featured Anthony Fauci, who is in uh, semi-quarantine, uh, self-quarantine, because he was exposed to somebody who has the virus, and there was a tussle between him and um, and uh, Rand Paul. Um, Bill Galston, uh, some people might say that any movement that can make a villain out of Anthony Fauci has its morals askew a bit, <laughs> but uh, but that seems to be one of the things that's that's happening this week is that Fauci has become a demon figure for some. Yeah, with the emphasis on the word some, you know, if if you look at public opinion surveys. Uh, they have been rock solid throughout. Uh, Fauci on these questions is one of the most trusted persons in the entire country. Uh, and he is seen as speaking the medical truth, uh, not bowing to political pressure. Uh, I think it is going to be very, very difficult to demonize him, except in those quarters that will simply accept any argument uh, that tends to the advantage of the president and to the disadvantage of his critics. And my assessment is that 20 to 25% of the country might fall into that category. And the rest are squarely on Fauci's side. Uh, and uh, in a uh, in a head-to-head -head showdown on credibility, between Fauci and the president of the United States, Fauci wins hands down. So I'm trying to figure out how this particular caper is going to is going to play to the advantage of the president and the White House and the Republican Party in the long term. They may end up doing more damage to themselves than to <laughs> their intended victim. Um, Linda, whenever you follow these go down these little rabbit holes of these crazy people. Um, it gets weirder and weirder, but this is our world and this is what we have to do. Um, one of the people who is participating in spreading rumors about Anthony Fauci is none other than Rudy Giuliani, lawyer to the President of the United States, formerly uh, well-respected uh, former governor, et cetera. JVL, uh, Jonathan Last of the, week of the Bulwark, had a fantastic piece um, where he look at these various strands um, floated on talk radio and One America News Network, which is Trump's favorite network. Um, and um, and it is, it, I'll just give you one quote. This is, uh, this is uh, from, I think, One America News. Oh, no, this was from Giuliani. He said, quote, Fauci gave $3.7 million to the Wuhan laboratory. We paid for the damn virus that's killing us. Um, and of course, you can't separate all of this from the other conspiracies that are now sprouting on the right. Um, and we'll get to Obama gate, but you know, there's, there's this vast, uh, on, on the right, you hear these rumors that, uh, that the move to get a vaccine is something that that conservatives should resist, that it's a plot by the World Health Organization and George Soros and Bill Gates and the Clintons. 
Well, um, first, can I give just a little shout out to Dr. Fauci for his answer in that exchange with uh, Rand Paul? I thought it was one of the most brilliant, understated answers I've ever heard. He had been accused of of assuming that he was the end all. And his response is, I don't see myself as the end all. I see myself as a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I just thought that was just sort of brilliant in the way he encapsulated that. And you're absolutely right. He is being demonized. You know, I have a lot of friends, as I'm sure you do, Mona, being a conservative, who send me stuff. Oh, you have to read this. Well, I got flooded with all these One America stories about Dr. Fauci and and uh, chlor- uh, hydroxychloroquine. And I started to read it and I thought, oh my God, this is just nutty. I'm not going to read it. And my response to the person who'd sent it to me was, you know, this is, you really have to be careful about where you get your information from. And what has happened now is that we do live in this incredibly polarized world where we have uh, people, some of whom you and I know, who now get their news exclusively from Fox News, from One America, from Rudy Giuliani, um, who was America's mayor for a while, but, you know, is uh, has long lost uh, his appeal, I think, to uh, thinking people. Um, and, and then you do have people on the left who, you know, it, not just on this issue, but on, on other issues, get their information from very distorted sources where, you know, everything's about evil drug companies and evil uh, corporations and ripping off the you know, everyone and suppressing the vote for everyone. And I mean, there's just, you know, it, it, it's not just the right that has crazy people. The left has its its fair share of crazy people too. And I think that is what makes things so dangerous right now. And it does give me great pause to think about what's going to happen um, as we approach the election. And particularly the effects of isolation on people. I think people are spending far too much time on social media. They're spending far too much time in front of the television set and they're either watching MSNBC or they're watching Fox, you know, or CNN. Uh, And so they're getting, um, they're getting, I think their brains are being affected by this. People are not using good judgment. They're not approaching this. Um, And they're doing it in a way where politics is often in the background of most people's lives because they have so much else going on. They've got their kids in the schools and the sports teams, and then they've got their, you know, leisure activities. And obviously they have their jobs and politics is just a little bit of their world. Now the politics of coronavirus is like everybody's entire world. And I think that's, that's so dangerous. Yeah, that's a really good point about the um, the quarantine actually possibly exaggerating some of the trends that were already there. Um, so, Adam, I have to confess that um, I in my in a in a past life I used to find figures on the left somewhat clownish um, people. Uh, uh, like Maxine Waters and others who were, you know, they were always sort of just way too far in, in, in the kind of rhetoric that they would use and uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton. And 
um, and and the things that they would they would spout and the conspiracy theories that they would indulge. I mean, remember that they were the ones who, you know, during the Bush administration, they could not just say, "Look, there was a good faith." mistake made by the Bush administration. They they thought there were weapons of mass destruction, turned out there weren't, but no, it had to be that he lied, Bush lied, people died, and so on. But I have to say now, I mean, when you're looking for the good faith arguments on the right, it's getting harder and harder. Um, there, there's so much garbage and, and dross out there. Um, it is wh- Where do you go to find the really thoughtful arguments? <laughs> well, that's that's that. Now, now you're moving on to the hard questions. Um, you know, I, I will say on, on the way you just described, and I thought Bill and, and Linda both put it so well. Um, one of your colleague Pete, Pete Weiner, for a long yes. time uh, during the last administration, was worried about what he called sort of the postmodern approach to argument, right? The facts-free, um, you know, non-objective approach, and and obviously that's not limited to either party, and we're seeing it in full strength right now in these attacks. On Fauci, um, in terms of if you, ha- you want to know my media diet, it's pretty it's pretty limited. I, I have a RSS reader with you know a couple hundred reader um, journalists I know and trust on the the news related to to um, to public health lately. I've been a dedicated reader of Stat, um, that sort mm-hmm. of sister publication of the Boston Globe and and others. I think it's not hard to find. Um, reasonably objective information if you're willing to do the hard work to find it, but that's the challenge. Can I just say a brief word about about the Fauci situation, just Please. from an institutionalist perspective? Yeah. Again, I keep I keep referring back to bulwark pieces I've I've written, but I'm you know as Alec oh, Baldwin and, said, always always be closing. No, um, and and I and I that you remind me that I want to mention that like me, you are a new uh, bulwark contributor, and uh, so I'm very proud to be uh, to be aligning with the bulwark at the same time that you are, Adam. Oh. Well, thanks, and uh, happy to fly the flag. I'm so proud of what our, our friends of the magazine have done. But um, I, you know, I did a piece a couple of. I mean, it's hard. Time flies now, but a month or two ago, where I'm, I'm in one of the main points I made is about Fauci. Um, you know, he. I'm glad he said, and he's right. He's not, you know, the end all be all. He's obviously a, a very significant and humble public servant. I'm so grateful for what he's doing. A lot of people want to make him the end all be all. Um, either you know because they want to demonize him or they want to. Um, deify him. Um, I think what I wrote was that at this point in late March, early April, we were demanding that Fauci play two roles, right? One was the internal roles and advisor to the president, giving the president blunt advice. The president would sort of trust that Fauci was, you know, there to, to advise him. But then publicly, and you remember there was a week where it felt like Fauci was gave 10 interviews um, or he was, he was quoted in 10 pieces. Um, publicly, there's a public facing role that he plays where he is sort of the nation's leading expert and reassurer and guide um, on on this, I, uh, this, this COVID-19 crisis. And we turned to him almost as sort of our, our de facto president for the sake of COVID-19 response. It doesn't work that way, though, right? Um, either in the end, Fauci is going to be a, you know, the, a leading voice for the public or he's going to be a trusted advisor for the president. I don't think he can have it both ways. And obviously, President Trump's peculiar psychology um, has exacerbates this problem way beyond anything else. But it's not a new problem. There's always a tension between um, the president, the you know, a president, the many policies or, or things he's he's focused on, the many interests he's trying to serve at once or strike balances between or or whatever, and and the experts that advise him. 
Um, and, and I think that what we're really seeing is like the worst case scenario public test of, of how much weight we can put on a president's um, expert advisors in public separate from that advisory role. I almost wish either President Trump hadn't included Fauci in his task force because I don't know how much Trump actually listens to him. Or I wish that everybody would leave Fauci alone and let him just talk privately to the president and hopefully do as much good as possible because I don't think you can do both these at once. And in this piece, for the, I'll just end by saying in this piece for the bulwark, which I think was called something like from reaction to reconstitution, you know, I said at the time, we really need three different parts of government to step up or three institutions to step up. One was the governors and they have, um, one is Congress. They seem to be doing it now, but the third was these bodies of, of expert advice outside of government that we really need as much of, if not more than, sort of expertise within government right now when it comes to advising the public. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, two, two quick follow-up points. One is that um, there was a tendency on the part of some members of the press uh, early on to sort of goad the president and Fauci into some sort of a feud, which was mm -hmm. very unhelpful. It was good for the press, but uh, but extremely unhelpful for the country. And uh, and that, that just was very unacceptable. The other thing that it's worth pointing out is um, Joe Biden um, said something in response to an interview where he said, um, look, you know, you just, the, the, you have to just follow the science. That's what you need to do to make these decisions. But, you know, that actually, I think, misconceives it. Um, and I think he would probably want to amend that if he thought about it a bit more. Because, of course, as you're saying, Adam, it is not just a matter of following the science. This is very complicated. There are many things to take into account. And there's no question that keeping the entire economy locked down um, to save lives ex exacts a terrible price as well. And and that, I mean, now I happen to think our president has really bungled it and has we've wound up with the worst of all possible worlds, that is the maximum amount of economic destruction and also not really getting a handle on the virus. But it is true that it's not so simple as you simply follow the advice of your of your epidemiologist because their particular focus is on saving lives, but not balancing those other considerations that you do elect presidents and other leaders to to weigh. So, um, okay. if I may offer an example um, from the other the last administration, um, think about the challenges that President Obama had, especially at the beginning of his administration, um, thinking about the the, the proper course of action in Afghanistan on military issues. And you think of the friction he had with his military advisors, with military leaders, um, the falling out with with um, McChrystal, and and on and on. We you know we see the, this dynamic play out in a variety of administrations. And I'll, anytime you try to focus on Trump as sort of the case study, it gets weird quick because yeah. President Trump's weird. Um, <laughs> but I'd say there's no shortage of examples um, um, from the last few administrations that see this playing out in, in institutional ways that I think really deserve the public's attention and consideration on how do you strike this balance? Right. Uh, um, may I? Yeah, Bill, I was just going to come to you. Um, All right. Uh, because, well, go ahead, make your, make your comment, and then I'll, I'll come back to you for a question. Well, I, you know, I was going to push back a little and say, first of all, we're in extraordinary circumstances where the stakes are extraordinarily high. 
You know, and some of the rules that might apply in normal circumstances may have to be set aside. Uh, you know, in my judgment, by including Anthony Fauci in the task force, Trump was trying to get the advantage of legitimating role that the inclusion of such a respected figure uh, could play while not taking the advice very seriously and making assertions that were simply contrary to fact over and over and over again. Was Dr. Fauci supposed to sit there like a bump on the log when the president of the United States was publicly encouraging the people of the United States to act in ways that would be detrimental to their health and perhaps lead to their deaths? I don't think so. So I'm not sure you know, what you're responding to, though. I don't think we are. Well, Nobody you know, said I, that. Yeah, you know, I uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, Adam seemed to be a little bit critical of Fauci's dual role. And I can see in the abstract what he's getting at. But concretely, I think Fauci had no choice but to play that dual role because of the extraordinary characteristics of the president who had placed him in that position. Yeah, I, and, I just want, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You know, and, you know, and therefore, I think all things considered, Fauci did what he had to do. And I didn't get the impression that Adam agreed with that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I want to dispel that right away. I'm not blaming Fauci at all here. Um, I'm not, not in the slightest, actually. And also, you know, if, if President Trump hadn't picked Fauci for the task force, even if he picked it for picked him for cynical reasons, which I think is totally I think Bill's point is totally plausible. Um, there would have been reporters asking every single day, why are you freezing Fauci out of the, the task force? Um, I don't blame Fauci at all. And I think that when he's asked questions, he should answer them honestly. I'm not blaming him. I am blaming everybody else, though. I am blaming um, the, the the public that wants to make that, that wants to make him the public authority on all of this. I think he's extremely smart and I want him to be giving his best and bluntest advice possible to President Trump in the hopes that President Trump will wise up and do the right thing. Um, but I think that my point in the article and all I'm trying to say now is I think the, the dual role is untenable. I'm not blaming Fauci for selecting it. He didn't select it. Um, it was foisted upon him. Um, but I think it is untenable and we'll see how it plays out. If this week is the end game, a few weeks ago seemed like it could be the end game, but it wasn't. Uh, we don't know. Um, I just wish that in public, Dr. Fauci were left to do the best job he can in advising the government effort and allow other experts outside of the task force to become sort of the, the go-to people when we ask for advice publicly. Well, fair enough, except that people won't pay attention to an expert task force made up of people they've never heard of. Yeah, but who uh, heard of Dr. Fauci before this started? I mean, obviously oh, from his, his his history with the with HIV and AIDS. But if you did a poll f six months ago and asked a thousand Americans who's Dr. Fauci, how, how many people would have said, "Oh, I remember him"? Maybe a hundred tops. Well, I guess my other my other point would be that politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. Uh, and President Trump has created a vacuum. And he's forcing other individuals and to some extent other institutions to expand to fill that vacuum. 
Um, I actually wish he there were more of a vacuum because it <laughs> it seems like a tornado instead. But um, but let me let me ask Damon um, about the president's tactic this week, which um, you know with now the death toll is at about eighty four thousand. It's above that. Uh, 36 million unemployed, um, no end in sight, although the numbers are drifting down a bit, uh, but uh, nothing like a, a V-shape that we would have hoped for. Um, but uh, but this week, Damon, the president, uh, began a uh, tirade about Obamagate, um, the greatest crime in the history of our country, he said. Um, he tweeted that Joe Scarborough was guilty of murder, possibly, um, and uh, and on and on. So, uh, you know, is is it uh, is it is this traditional Trumpian tactic of you know creating another distraction to force everybody to go rushing over to the other side of the ship, you know, and tip it over in the other direction. Is that going to work here? Or what do you think he's up to? Well, I do think he's trying to do a version of that same move, uh, which is, I mean, Trump is, is absolutely temperamentally incapable of of pivoting toward any kind of center, any kind of consensus building, uh, any kind of uh, unification of the country, despite the fact that every now and then he'll give a speech in which he talks about uh, Americans coming together. That's always a scripted speech that he's reading with almost a grimace. Uh, but anytime he's kind of left to his own at a rally, uh, at one of his press avails or uh, in his tweets, it's always the opposite, which is to to pitch toward what he thinks of as his base. The problem is that if you look at the polling, his base has, I think, on a lot of the coronavirus-related stuff, has really shrunk, not in the sense that his overall polling has gone down, but in the sense that on specific issues related to the virus and Trump's response to it, he's he's speaking to an ever narrower slice, an ever more extreme slice of those voters who have been sort of with him on and off for his entire presidency. So how many Americans really are, you know, he, the thing about Scarborough, I mean, truly baffling. I mean, Scarborough's morning show, Morning Joe, has 1.1 million viewers. That's one third of 1% of the country watches that show. How many more even know who he is? Maybe three times that many, maybe 10 times that many. If it's even that amount, what is he talking about? And it's not only, not only does he waste everyone's time bringing up Joe Scarborough, but then to bring in this just insane conspiracy theory about him being a, a non-prosecuted murderer. It's, it's total crazy town. And the, the slice of the electorate who might be motivated in a positive way by that is so small. And then the Obamagate stuff is the same, but, but, you know, maybe a slightly larger portion, but really how many? Obama is a very popular ex-president. He's very widely liked. He probably would have beaten Trump if he could have run for a third term very handily. It's not like, 
Hillary Clinton, where there was a kind of wellspring of of kind of enduring skepticism about quote unquote the Clintons that the right sort of uh, fostered for a long time, and then of course are getting embroiled in the whole investigation from the FBI about the emails. All of that created a kind of vague feeling of corruption around her. But that's none of that is true about Obama. It's only true for people who who uh you know get really up in arms about uh, unmasking and the federal and read the federalist website and its conspiracy mongering and I guess maybe we could pivot back at the end of the show to to bring Adam back in on the whole unmasking so I really think I mean I I don't know what Trump thinks he's doing uh other than more of what he usually does but call me skeptical for thinking uh, I I doubt very much it's going to help. Actually, we have to um, I have to interrupt you right there Damon because I promised Adam I would let him go. He has to go do another podcast. He's very much in demand. So um we thank him very much for joining us and uh Adam hope you'll come back. Oh, anytime. I really appreciate this, and I've enjoyed the discussion. Thank you very much. Well, on that subject, uh, let me just turn to Bill, who I know follows the polls very closely all the time. Um, Bill, a lot of the polls have been very stable. There were a number of reports this week that uh, Biden holds a lead that is uh, unlike any that we have seen since, I don't know, 1944, in terms of the stability of his lead. Um Nevertheless, there was a poll this week from uh, CNN that I'd be curious to hear your take on, um, which was um, a poll of the battleground states, and it found Trump ahead in a number of battleground states. Is this uh, something you've looked at? It certainly is. And uh, what you have to do, I think, is take a single poll in the context of all of the other polls. As of now, the CNN poll is a distinct outlier. Uh, And so what I always do in circumstances like these is say, okay, that's interesting. Uh, Does it signal some sort of important turn in the most important states? Or is it an aberration? Uh, Because polls always always say uh, that with a standard sample, there's a 95% chance that the actual results will fall within uh, plus or minus two and a half or three or three and a half, depending on the sample size. That means there's a 5% chance that they won't. And if you're dealing with dozens and dozens of polls in the course of an average month, uh, then the odds are you're going to have a handful of outliers. So let us all, uh, you know, uh, holster our guns here and wait for another two weeks of polling from all of the battleground states or battleground states individually. Because what we can say with some certainty is that if you look at the polling in the individual battleground states, with the exception of North Carolina, uh, Biden is actually in the lead in all of them. And so there's, there's just a gap here that it can only be filled with additional information. Um, it reminds me of a line that I have quoted many times from my friend Richard Brookheiser, the great historian, who, uh, when when presented with information, he would say, "Interesting, possibly even true." 
<laughs> yeah, so, I mean, without without getting into it, I mean, uh, that that particular bunch of poles with all the battlegrounds lumped together, that's not great methodology. So uh, I, I didn't really take it all that seriously. I trust, as Bill said, much more the individual polls of battleground states where Biden continues to be doing pretty well. Linda, there's one thing that's disturbing that that came out this week, and that is that Joe Biden has formed these task forces with the Bernie people to come up with policy suggestions. Is there anything that can make your heart sink more <laughs> than that? Well, uh, I was just starting to breathe a little bit easier with uh, Bill and, and Damon's explanations on the CNN poll, which did uh, cause me to have some heart palpitations over the weekend. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think, uh, look, I think they have to get the Bernie voters to be comfortable enough to vote with him. Um, and I don't care if they offer him suggestions. I just hope that he uh, takes it with a grain of salt. Uh, and, you know, how you uh, sound, you know, sound out people and listen to people and take their suggestions. Uh, let's hope if he starts uh, making uh, decisions about who's going to be his policy director of uh, the campaign, et cetera, that he doesn't uh, go scouring uh, in the, the weeds of the Bernie campaign to find that person. That would cause me uh, more problems. But Mona, you and I have said all along that it's not like we are pro-Biden, that we're going to agree with Biden on policy stuff. I disagree with him on tons of stuff. I'm very unhappy with, you know, the thought he is going to reverse the Title IX regs that were just put out, which I think were a matter of fairness and, and due process uh, to those who are accused. Um, but, you know, the alternative is you've got somebody who is not only supremely incompetent, uh, but I think both immoral and unethical in his uh, behavior. And, you know, I guess it's the lesser of two evils, which is often the case when you're making uh, selections in presidential elections. Linda, why don't we start with you for our final segment since you're you're up. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to point out a piece written by Thomas Edsel in the New York Times this week. It was in on May 13th. So I guess that was yesterday, uh, Wednesday. Uh, Trump is staking out his own universe of alternative facts. Uh, the article, the, the headline doesn't really do justice to the article. The article is all about the uh, Trump uh, ground game and the way in which they are using both the coronavirus shutdown uh, and people being on the internet all the time, but using digital media to feed a world of alternative facts to, um, to their supporters uh, and also hooking them on coming back constantly to seek this information. It was described as the gamification of a campaign. Uh, apparently, if you go on, they have an app. If you download it and you go on and get information on it and, and you know take all of the stuff that comes at you, you start to earn points, and the points then uh, are used to give you discounts so that you can buy, you know, make America great again or keep America great hats. Um, and so it's using the kind of Las Vegas principle, and it's extremely smart. Uh, it's brilliant marketing, and it really causes me to worry because I don't see the Democrats doing 
anything remotely like this uh, to be able to generate uh, this kind of really strong support from a base. It is idiocracy, my friends, Uh, the complete transformation of politics into entertainment. All right. What do you have, Bill? Well, uh, I can't say that I've always agreed with Larry Summers, but he just published a genuinely thought-provoking article in the Financial Times in which he argued that the coronavirus, viewed in retrospect, is going to be seen as one of the historical hinge moments, like uh, the outbreak of World War I or 1929, uh, uh, and that it's going, to, it's going to change almost everything in ways that we can't fully anticipate, can only know as we, as we live through them. You know, he speculates that it could lead to a transformation in the role of government uh, and also that it could lead to a profound geopolitical power shift. The fact that Asian nations systematically seem to have done a better job of coping with COVID-19 than the West is just one more sign uh, of a shift in soft power away from Europe and North America and towards Asia. I don't know whether any of this is true, but it sure could be. And it's a very interesting take on the scope of the events that we're, lead- that we're living through. You said it was in the Financial Times? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Damon. Well, um, my uh, old friend and former teacher, Mark Lilla, has a a very interesting piece in uh, actually in a surprising place in the Mercatus Center website. Mercatus is a largely libertarian uh, outfit uh, run out of George Mason University, but they're doing a symposium on uh, what uh, liberalism will look like after COVID-19. And Lilla's contribution, I think it's the first one posted, is titled, At a Time of Accelerating Globalization, We Need a Stronger and More Effective Government, uh, which makes uh, uh, exactly that case that, uh, that, the, uh, that the pandemic has exposed kind of the, the dark sides of globalization on all kinds of dimensions and that the proper response is to try and reconceive uh, the American federal government to be not necessarily larger for its own sake, but, um, but smarter, stronger, and uh, more capable of uh, doing what we need to do to mostly um, uh, strengthen our ability uh, uh, to have kind of self-determination as a country uh, in the face of all of these trends that uh, are coming at us from outside. So mm. it's a provocative read. It it sounds it. It sounds like I would have a lot of problems with uh, that premise, <laughs> especially the part about government being smarter. Um, it uh, never seems to work out that way. Uh, and um, in any event, uh, I will weigh in with something on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, this I was um, alerted to the existence of this article by uh, Jonathan Last uh, of The Bulwark. It was a piece that ran in uh, The Guardian uh, from London. So I don't know about you all, but I read Lord of the Flies when I was a teenager, and it had a big influence on me. I, I was 
sort of a gloomy sort anyway. And I thought, yeah, you know, that sure shows what human nature is like. A famous story made into a movie and so on about boys shipwrecked on an island. And um, this this uh, book became uh, really uh, a sensation all over the world, published in many languages. The boys become savages. They commit murder. They're, they're, they're just, uh, they're just, they, they, they become primitivized when they are left to their own devices. Well, it turns out that um, there was an actual case in real history of a group of boys who were marooned on an island um, in the South Seas near Tonga. Um, they were there for something like 18 months. They had been, the parents, everyone thought they'd been killed. Their funerals had been held. and uh, But sure enough, they were found and rescued. And it turned out that they had cooperated with one another, that they had shared, that they had worked together to try to figure out ways to get smoke signals so that they could be rescued. One boy broke his leg and the others teamed up to um, do his chores for him while he was recuperating. Really nice story. I recommend it. <laughs> all right. Thank you, one and all. Um, we will return next week for more of the madness from your nation's capital. And uh, everybody, please stay safe. <laughs>